Hi, I'm Scott Soshkin. And I'm Michael Barr. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this show, we speak with Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott, and he tells us what's foremost on his mind regarding the business of sports. There's so much going on. Um, in terms of you know what you deal with day to day in sports and never knowing what you're going to wake up to, of course, in a role like I'm in. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. And with us is Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. And let's start with ESPN. More layoffs at the Sports Network. Second time this year. Unlike the first time, uh, Michael, this is 150 employees, most of which are names that fans at home will not know. These are not on-camera stars. These are producers. These are editors. Uh, but again, uh, kind of indicative of the struggles that ESPN has had and really the, the, the cable news networks are having over the past couple of years. The revenue is just not flowing in the way that it used to, uh, and these cuts are, are a result of that. Subscribers down again, just a reallocation of resources. They're not going to pour money into things like SportsCenter, ESPN News. They're going to focus on digital programming. This is just ESPN trying to find a way to connect with the folks who have cut the cord, who have never had cable. They're trying to find new ways to reach customers. They have Snapchat, SportsCenter now. They're going to where they think the younger demographic is. The question is now, can they monetize it? And all Star Wars shows like Mike and Mike, it's over now. Because they signed off, they're trying to bring in brand new programming to the show. I'm sorry, you were about to say something. Yeah, the ESPN Plus, their OTT service, is going to launch next year. Uh, they keep pushing it back, but right now I think August is the is the launch time. Uh, that is going to be a, a pretty massive uh, announcement and a massive unrolling for ESPN. That is their future. It has to be. You know, as, as Scott said, as people cut the cord, as more people shy away from the traditional cable model, ESPN Plus and the future iterations of it have to be the future of ESPN. And we have to see the math. We just don't know the math. We knew what they were getting, about 7 bucks per subscriber per month. They're down from a height of 100-something million now to $88 million. That's a lot of money each month. What can they charge for this OTT service? What's the programming going to be? Will we get the major sports on there? Will it be niche sports? We just don't know. And they're not sure if the revenue gap will be filled with this OTT service. A lot of uncertainty at what used to be, still is, the worldwide leader, but for how long? Another topic that is in the news, FIFA, and it's not a pretty one. There is a trial that's going on in Brooklyn, New York, in federal court, and we're learning more about some of the seedy parts of FIFA. Well, not only are we learning more about it, sponsors are learning more about it, and that's the problem for FIFA. As we are getting very close to the World Cup being played in Russia, they are having a hard time uh, finding companies to cut the checks. There can be, if the specter of reputational harm, you don't want to align your brand with a damaged brand like FIFA, when who knows what the next shoe is if something else is going to drop? Why would you pay your big money, put all your marketing dollars to this event, when you could be doing damage to your brand. I read this today and it shocked me. You have to go back to 2011 for the last time that FIFA signed a top-tier sponsorship with an American or a European company. You know, they're replacing a lot of these companies with companies in Russia, which is hosting, 
companies in Qatar, which is hosting, companies in China, which really, really, really wants, wants to, to host. Um, but you're just not seeing a lot of the, the big time dollar spenders flowing in from, from Europe and, and, and Russia, or Europe and America like you used to. And that has to worry the folks at FIFA. You know, you, you can't build your entire sponsorship portfolio off of country, uh, companies from those three countries. It just doesn't work. And the U.S. team isn't there. So what's the impetus? You can't really attach your brand to the U.S. players. That's the team that most U.S. audiences would tune in to see. It, it, it's a problem. We'll see if they can figure out a way to make it an attractive property for advertisers. Well, let's talk about some happy soccer in our third topic. Major League Soccer. Who gets the expansion teams? Eben, go ahead. I know you love your Major League Soccer expansion. Yeah, MLS Commissioner Don Garber announced that, that the, the next two expansion teams are going to come from uh, either Cincinnati, Detroit, Sacramento, or Nashville. <laughs> it is, I'll be honest, it, it's hard to keep track of the expansion that MLS is doing. It's happening so quickly. LAFC will be launching next year. There talks with Miami to be the 24th franchise. These two are going to be, be be 25 and 26. There's two more coming in the next couple of years, as Garber has said. Uh, this league is expanding very, very quickly. Do the revenues, the national revenues, justify what people are paying for these franchises? Or are they looking forward saying that soccer will grow because of the demand for live programming and the expansion of digital younger demographic for MLS, that they can be very, very important along OTT plays. Maybe that's why people are investing. What I found interesting is Sacramento is one of the favorites to get one of these two teams. And Hewlett Packard CEO Meg Whitwin was announced as an investor in that franchise a while back, but we didn't see her now. So it's interesting to see if what's going on, there was some flux with that ownership group, if in the end they have enough to get it across the finish line. To both gentlemen, will Major League Soccer one day become one of the five, now the fifth major food group in sports from baseball, football, basketball, and hockey? Now will we have soccer? I'm going to keep it short. Yes, it will. I agree. Yes. Okay, now let's get to our interview. Our guest today is a former captain of the Harvard tennis team, a former ATP player. He actually won a tournament, a former commissioner of the WTA, and now commissioner of the Pac-12. Larry Scott, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Question for you. What is first and foremost on your mind in the business of sports these days? Wow. Well, there's a um, there's so much going on. Um, in terms of you know what you deal with day to day in sports and never knowing what you're going to wake up to, of course, in a role like I'm in, you know, with the uh, changing dynamics of coaches. We've got coaches coming and going. Uh, we've got all kinds of uh, financial challenges that uh, our universities and their programs deal with. Um, all kinds of competitive issues. You know, right now it's around the college football playoff. Uh, it's around basketball and, and how our team's doing early in the season. But there's also existential uh, issues and questions that we're very focused on. And uh, for me, I think the two biggies are um, the collegiate model and the extent to which um, we're able to preserve it in the light, in light of all the external threats and pressures and, and lawsuits and people that would like to change the model uh, and the changing nature of the media industry is something that we are deeply immersed in um, as we own and control our own network and have important partnerships with ESPN and Fox um, spend a lot of time 
thinking about that, such a dynamic space, and trying to understand where it's going and preparing for that future. So, you know, one of the things I love about this role is, you know, the day-to-day, you know, uh, blocking and tackling and uh, issues that you have to deal with and constantly be on your toes. Uh, A lot of that's reactionary. But the long-term macro issues that you also have to plan for strategically. You mentioned financial challenges of your member institutions. What are the top one or two challenges that they face? So there is significantly increasing costs of doing business for uh, a lot of our athletics departments. You know, there, it's a very, very competitive landscape where, um, you know, there's a, there's a small market for the most elite coaches, uh, keeping up with facilities, uh, support for student-athletes. And at our conference, supporting a lot of programs. So, you know, we're a conference that wins more national championships than any other. Most of our universities support, you know, over 25 different sports. We've got some, you know, 35 or 36 different sports. Um, and staying competitive nationally um, where, you know, there can be an arms race and really competitive market. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of cost pressure, and with a regular desire to try to do more for student athletes, whether it's the cost of scholarships, the increasing costs of tuition, doing more in medical uh, support for student athletes, nutritional support for student athletes, uh, more sports science and sports medicine. Um, so the costs there's pressure that the costs rise faster then the revenues rise. So you're managing that is, is a daunting challenge and the, the need and the desire to find new sources of revenue for our universities is some of the things that keep them awake at night uh, that we try to help with. How do you balance the, the fact that obviously as a, as a Power 5 conference you have some schools that are better off than others? That's just kind of the way the, the, the conference is set up. The problems that some of your schools may be having are not problems that others are having. Uh, is that a challenge, trying to figure out a solution for everybody when not everybody's starting from the same financial standpoint? Yeah, that's a big issue in college sports because, um, you know, the concept of relativity affects uh, everyone at different levels. So uh, you hear a lot about, you know, the big five conferences, you know, with the strongest football uh, uh, programs and the gap that might exist between them and some of the smaller conferences or ones that don't have elite football or don't play football at all. But then even you know within a conference like ours, we um, you know we might have athletics departments with budgets of you know close to 120 million dollars a year, and athletics departments with 80 million dollars a year. Um, you know in different in, in addition to financial disparities. Yeah, we've got schools in Los Angeles, and we've got schools in uh, rural markets. Um, so there's a lot of uh, differentiation and, and, and disparities uh, between uh, universities, more so in college sports than in pro sports. And the challenge that presents for universities is, you know, identifying what your strengths are, what your resources are, picking your spots, you know, where you want, where you can compete with excellence, um, and being disciplined about that. Um, so there, there's a very, very wide gap within conferences 
in addition to as between conferences. We're talking here with Larry Scott, commissioner of the Pac-12 conference. As you just said, I mean, you deal with just within your conference schools that may have a $40 million difference in budget. Uh, for the NCAA as a whole, it obviously deals with schools like a USC in your conference, and it has to police those in the same way and give schools regulations in the same way that it would a much smaller community college uh, in, in, in California. As you talk about kind of changes to the, the overall collegiate model, um, to what extent are, do you do you at all think about a future without the NCAA or, or a breakup of figuring out some way for, for, for you guys to police yourselves in a different way than a school that has a tenth of the revenue or a conference that has schools that are much, much smaller than yours uh, has to act? Yeah, I, th- I think there's no reason why there should always be a role for uh, the NCAA to provide national championships, um, a centralized uh, governing body, um, you know, that creates rules, um, you know, can can police them, um, and other, you know, advocacy and support for collegiate athletics. I think football is the area where um, there's probably the biggest gaps and disparity. And in football, the, you know, biggest uh, ten conferences have come together to create the college football playoff. So, you know, everyone's still under the umbrella of the NCAA, um, but the media rights uh, and the structure of postseason is really controlled by the conferences uh, for the biggest. So, I think we found a good way to be under the big tent of the NCAA, you know, with all the other you know, Division One schools, um, but not have that limit our ability to structure uh, the competition and manage the rights um, in a way, you know, that uh, allows us to be progressive and, you know, move from the BCS to a college football playoff and uh, design it the way we've designed it, not get not get held back uh, by institutions that, you know, don't have the resources or, you know, don't necessarily see the world the same way. So football is really a great example of where we've been able to be progressive and, and advance and be responsive to fans um, and continue to fuel the immense popularity of the sport uh, while still being under the umbrella of the NCAA. So I think that's an interesting you know, model. Uh, going forward. The other big development over the last few years was the um, creation of a substructure um, that we refer to as autonomy for the big five conferences to make legislative decisions when it comes to the type of support for student athletes you might want to provide. So like the five conferences, 65 schools within the five conferences can make decisions outside the structure of the NCA when it comes to the value of a scholarship or what are the financial support you want to provide. So I think that was a recognition that, you know, one size fits all doesn't make sense in every area and that the realities are different for schools with more resources. And if they want to do more to support student-athletes than schools they can't afford to, we shouldn't be held back. So I think we found a way to be somewhat flexible, yet still part of the NCA. Larry, one of the biggest news coming out of college sports in the past few months, obviously, was the Department of Justice, uh, their release about their investigation into kind of the black market for players and shoe companies within college basketball of the schools that were named, obviously, uh, a few of them were, were in your conference. I'm curious about how catastrophic or how big a deal you think that may have on on college sports and college basketball, I guess, more specifically. Uh, is that as, as big a, a, a land shifting as, as some people made it out to be? 
Uh, yes, we're really uh, concerned by what we've seen as a result of the FBI investigation. You know, I think the issues are significant, and we're concerned about them. Uh, we so much so that we um, have decided to you know create a, a task force that's going to look deeper beyond what we learned from the FBI. We we're going to you know investigate, look into it more. So I've got you know some former coaches, um, industry um, veterans, uh, former student athletes. Um, participating. We're doing deep dive into some of the issues around recruiting, the role of the shoe companies, agents, uh, these types of things, and, and the whole one-and-done scenario in college basketball, because we are concerned that basketball is uh, out of whack with some of the other sports and, and, and conducive uh, to elements and cheating that you don't want to see uh, in college sports. So I think out of this uh, will come, in addition to wherever the FBI gets to in this, and there have been indictments, and um, that's an ongoing process. In addition to what they uncover, I think you'll see the leaders in college sports, and I think we're going to be at the forefront of it with others, um, uh, going further and, and using this as an opportunity to create reform that tries to clean up uh, college basketball, the recruiting environment, and uh, some of that may involve, you know, the role of shoe companies in AAU basketball uh, and other things. And I'm hoping that it also results in the NBA and the NBA Players Association revisiting uh, the whole one-and-done rule. We'd like to see a world where uh, the young phenom that really only wants to play in the NBA has no interest in going, going to college is able to go straight to the NBA or the NBA G League um, and doesn't have to, you know, go to university for a year, but that's, that's a decision and a rule governed by the NBA and the NBA Players Association via their collective bargaining agreement. Let me jump in the letter. Let me ask you, is there credence to the devil's advocate that already, however, that you're being reactionary instead of proactive, if it was true that this was an open secret? Everybody's sort of known this is how the business of big-time college basketball has worked for a long time. Yeah, I think what's new, um, in addition to, you know, uh, according to the FBI, these are federal crimes, not just NCA violations. Um, I think some light has been shown on the role of agents, financial planners, and the fact that you know payments are being made to steer and direct uh, prospects or uh, current student athletes to the you know these agents as financial advisors. So I think I think um, the complexity of it, the extent of it, and 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 some of the tactics. Um, you know, is new to some people as a result of this. Um, but, you know, sometimes you need a wake-up call like this, too, um, to uh, cause people to want to make some significant change. So, you know, whether it's this is really new information for people or whether it's just gotten to the point where they realize the seriousness of it, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure. You know, what I do know is I think there's an opportunity now to make some more systemic reform. And there have been plenty of people in the wake of these allegations who have said that this is reason A, exhibit A, why players should be paid or given a little bit more of the revenue pie. Uh, The idea being that maybe if if they had more compensation, they wouldn't have to fall victim to or would not be enticed by by bribery and stuff like that. I take it I have a hunch that, that you don't fully agree with that, but I'm curious as to how much you think the system does need to be changed. I mean, specifically, yeah. what can you do in in lieu of paying them? What can be done to kind of help put put this yeah. in the rearview mirror? Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, I feel, I feel the opposite. 
of uh, you know, the, the, those that uh, uh, would make the point you made. Uh, I'd say this is an example of what you don't want, and you don't want more of this, and you don't want an open market where young high schoolers are you know, being paid to be directed to go to certain schools or wor- work with agents. Um, you know, w- what I'd like to see happen is the NBA and the NBA Players Association change their rules so that those young high school phenoms that don't have interest in going to college, don't have interest in growing up as young men on their own, um, uh, you know, living with other people, um, having a chance to study, you know, spread their, spread their wings, uh, develop uh, as young adults. Those that aren't interested in that aren't forced to have to go to college just to pursue their NBA dream. Uh, we'd be delighted if they have the opportunity to go straight to the NBA. What we want is those that choose the scholastic path, those that see value uh, in going to play college basketball uh, and get the experience uh, of college and want to be better prepared for life after, whether it involves basketball or not, go to university and stay for three years, like happens in football like happens in baseball, and they have a chance, if they want, to get a degree, uh, to study, and to mature and, and develop. Um, that's what I'd like to see. I think, I, you know, I hope that's realistic. It's not something college controls. Uh, unfortunately, it's governed by collective bargaining agreements negotiated between the NBA and the NBA players received, and, and the NBA basketball outliers. You know, football's got, got a good system. Baseball's got a good system. Hockey's got a good system. Uh, basketball does not. So we're calling on the NBA and the NBA Players Association to make a change and step up. Um, at the same time, I think we have to self-examine, um, you know, how recruiting takes place. And it, you know, happens with heavy influence around shoe companies that are involved in AAU basketball. And college has let the recruiting environment get away from high school gyms. Uh, to places like Las Vegas and Atlanta and commercialized events, which uh, are breeding ground for the commercial interests and intermediaries. So I think it's a combination of things. I don't think there's any silver bullet. But I think if the NBA and the Players Association address one and done and come up with a more responsible system, and uh, if college looks at the recruiting environment and gets recruiting to happen more in the high schools with high school coaches, um, you know, with more transparency and away from private gyms and commercial interests running tournaments sponsored by shoe companies, I think those would be two major steps. Let's talk with what I think is near and dear to your heart, new media. You are out front, you want to go global, and you see digital, you see Facebook, Twitter, Amazon as ways of accomplishing that where do you want to be, and how do you want to get there? Well, in part, the reason we see it is you know we're based here in San Francisco on the West Coast, and we don't have to look far. A lot of the innovation happening in media and technology is in our backyard with alumni. And part of your rebrand was all about being on the West Coast. You said let's utilize that as a positive. Yes, yeah. You know, when I I'm an I'm an East Coaster from New York originally, and moved out here in 2009 to take over as commissioner of the Pac-10 at the time, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of talk about East Coast media bias, and I was like, hey, things are pretty awesome out here. Let's talk about the West Coast advantage uh, that we have. You're in San Francisco, up through Seattle, uh, you know, the the leading technology hub uh, in our country, if not around the world. L.A., the entertainment capital uh, of the world. Amazing, you know, things going on out here, uh, companies like Apple, 
like Amazon, like Nike, you know, you know, very cutting edge looking to the future, and our conference should really be enmeshed in that. So when it came to doing our media deals, um, in addition to having fantastic strategic partnerships with ESPN and Fox and benefiting from their platforms and the resources they provide us from an exposure and revenue standpoint, all their marketing muscle, which is significant. We very much felt that um, owning and controlling your content is going to be essential going forward in a rapidly changing landscape uh, where technology is disintermediating and fans uh, want to connect in, in new and different ways all the time. Owning and controlling uh, your content you know, allows you to be nimble and to evolve with that and, and, and test and to understand uh, what your consumers want. So that, that decision was taken back in 2011, and we launched the Pac-12 Network with 800 live events and digital platforms and apps starting in 2012. Uh, and, and, and that was the thesis back then. I couldn't have imagined, however, that the world would change as rapidly as it has. And, you know, sitting in 2017, Amazon broadcasting an NFL uh, package and Facebook Live is doing events with us, and we're doing events with Twitter. Um, and the, the other part that you mentioned is you know, being here on the West Coast. When, when we look out, uh, we look west, not east. So not only do we look to you know, the leading technology and media players out west, but we look to the Asia-Pacific region. And we, we have a deal with Alibaba. Yes, when we just extended it um, through 2024, where not only are they helping us bring events uh, over to China, which are you know, amazing opportunities for student-athletes and for our schools, but they're distributing 175 of our events live on their digital platform. Uh, and, that, and that's just the beginning. So, you know, it's an increasingly global world and marketplace. Uh, the strongest American brands, including, you know, some of our university brands, are um, uh, popular, of interest. Uh, some of our sports, like basketball, soccer, swimming, track and field, uh, you know, in a market like China and others in Asia, where the very folks on the Olympics love basketball, are of increasing demand. And uh, yet we're seeing a lot of traction and a lot of interest in um, uh, the product. Is distribution a challenge? Having the content is one thing, having deals is another, but you've got to have people carry it. I assume, though, as other uh, content providers have found out, distribution isn't always easy. Yeah. I say yes and no. Uh, we've got over 75 different uh, distribution partners. Um, I think if you've got quality content, um, you're always going to you know, do fine you know, when it comes to uh, distribution, which we do. We were you know, careful to make sure we have 35 football games on the Pac-12 networks. And, and so we've got you know, great deals with uh, Comcast and, and Charter and Cox and Dish um, and, uh, you know, uh, 80, uh, uh, approximately 80 uh, in total. Um, so many, many other you know, smaller ones and mid-sized distributors. Uh, but there are certain ones we've, we've struggled with. It's hard to be an independent. We felt strongly that we wanted to keep control ourselves, be independent, um, uh, alongside the license deals we did with ESPN and Fox. And we're certainly going through a phase. The, the pendulum, you know, I've seen swing back and forth. Right now it's certainly swinging in a direction of consolidation. And with consolidation, if you're not part of uh, you know, a family of brands and content, you know, it's they're, they're, they're big uh, entities lining up on the distribution side to get scale. And there's big entities amassing 
you know, properties on the programming side to amass scale and leverage. So if you're an independent, uh, there are, of course, challenges because you don't have the same leverage that others have. But we very much got a long-term view, and I think you may see the pendulum swing again uh, as these um, you know, tech companies uh, uh, become major players. Obviously, the Internet and broadband and the speeds and connections has very much changed the world, and people aren't going to be reliant going forward on you know the satellite dish that someone hammers into your roof or the cable pipe coming into your house you know all you need is a broadband connection is going to be uh, an explosion in terms of the number of services that you can be offered and, and, and that's good for consumers as you talk about the west coast advantage there's also in some ways a small disadvantage i, I hear from a lot of schools about kickoff times for football on the west coast obviously your games get pushed a lot later a lot of schools don't like that i'm curious about how much that is driving your look at new media uh, when you look yeah. at, at the amazons and, and the, the twitters and the facebook's uh, they don't have kind of the demands on kickoff times that maybe espn or fox does and i know that that's increasingly becoming a pain point for schools yeah i think i think it's really a tension between what's the ideal for the fan that buys the ticket that shows up to the game versus what's ideal from a television viewership or more media viewership perspective and what's in the interests of the, of the media companies. What we've found is that you know the advantage we have you know, with the time zone is that if we kick off late in the afternoon or early evening, we've got near exclusivity and we capture huge market share amongst college football fans. Whereas if we kick off in the middle of the day, which is the ideal time for you know, many of our fans that want to attend our games, you're up against on any given Saturday 40 other games, um, and SEC games, ACC games, and the market is very, very fragmented. So what we found is that our ratings are highest, and therefore our value is highest from a media perspective when we play in late windows where we can capture a much greater market share. Um, but that, the rub, is um, too many of those games, you know, if you're a season ticket holder at one of our schools, it may not be the ideal time for you because you like the day games or you don't want to get home late at night. So that's what we're working our way through, how we find the right balance between maximizing value and exposure, which drives you to late kickoff times with what the fans that come to the games want, which is earlier kickoff times. And Larry, let's end it on this. All this distribution and the thirst for content. When does LeVar Ball get his own show on the Pac-12 Network? Uh, for one, I understand he has his own show. It's on, it's on Facebook Live, but I don't think you'll <laughs> be seeing a Pac-12 show anytime soon. All right. Well, Larry Scott, Commissioner of the Pac-12, thank you very much for taking a few minutes. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. Takeaways. Eben, I listened to Larry Scott, and he is an ardent supporter of sort of the way things are. Not sure if moving forward, this sort of pay the players, all the revenue that's coming, and everybody knows how much the coaches are paying. We're seeing buyouts in 12, 15 million dollar ranges. How long can someone like Larry and those who agree with him in college sports, and there are a lot, cling to that model where the players don't receive 
serious compensation from the revenue they help generate. And as he stays resolute in that regard, he's obviously very open to the changes going on in media right now. The Pac-12 has been on the foreground of deals with deals with companies like Alibaba, with Facebook. He is acutely aware of how digital media is changing. It's changing the way his fans interact with his teams, how his schools get their content out. Uh, and in that regard, he's on the forefront. He's, he's open to changes in that regard. So he knows what's new, but and he knows the revenue that comes with it, but he wants to cling to the old model, whereas the schools keep all the money. That's what it boils down to. How do we share the growing pie of money? And not surprisingly, an athletic director would like to keep it within the university coffers. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. And Evan, speaking of money going into coffers, that brings us to the number of the week, and it's a big one this week, 742,760. I know you know what that number represents because I told you earlier, the number of World Cup tickets sold sounds big, but historical comparison not so much, right? Sure. I think there's a number of factors here. Obviously, the first thing that comes to mind, some of the biggest countries are not there. The, the U.S. will not be there. Italy will not be there. Chile, Netherlands, these are some of the best teams in the world. They're not making the trip. But another layer, obviously, the tournament is in Russia. The last one was in Brazil, which might be a bigger tourist draw for a lot of people, especially South Americans who are soccer crazy. I think there are a number of factors here. But yes, that number, if you're part of FIFA, if you're part of the World Cup organizing committee, you can't be happy with that. So you have Russia first. Makes sense. It's the host country. But then a little surprising. Are you surprised that the number two buyer of World Cup tickets right now is the U.S.? Interesting. And I wonder how many of those people already bought tickets thinking, hey, maybe we'll, we'll be able to catch the U.S. game uh, wherever it is. And then, oh, shocker, a month ago, uh, there's not going to be a U.S. game. But we should point out that the 742,760, that's only the first wave of tickets. Uh, if we compare that to what happened in Rio, that's about half. That's got to be a concern. This, I mean, Half. And maybe doubly concerning, the narrative coming out of Rio was that, oh, Brazilians are notorious for being late in their decision-making. Brazilians who want to go to an event, they don't buy tickets a week before, they buy tickets a day before. That was the reason for the Rio numbers being so low this far out. If we're this far low for, for Russia, that's a bigger issue. All right, the next chance to get tickets, December 5th, they go on sale. You have been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time, exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Eben Novi-Williams. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest players in the industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 